Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Our study this morning will be from verses 13 through 16, a very well-known passage, the power and purpose of our witness to the world. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 13 and reading through verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The late John Stott said at the Cape Town Lausanne Conference, The greatest hindrances to the advance of the gospel worldwide is the failure of the lives of God's people. He draws attention to a failing witness among too many professing Christians. Another student of missions, an anonymous voice, addresses not only our witness but also our convictions and made this statement, the reason some folks don't believe in missions is that the brand of religion they have isn't worth propagating. It's in this context that I want us this morning to carefully reflect upon King Jesus' reminder that he has redeemed us and he has bought us and he has brought us into his kingdom that we might be the salt of the earth. There is a missiological, universal scope to that statement in verse 13. And he has also called us to be the light of the world. Again, a universal missiological focus. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying very clearly to us, our brand of religion ought to be worth propagating. And it certainly is when it is authentic Christianity. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 naturally flows out of verses 1 through 12, which together serve as something of a preamble to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, taking the uh, on and exhibiting the character of the Beatitudes, which we find in verses 1 through 12, is what makes it possible for us to be salt and light on the earth, uh, in the world, and among the nations. And I think Jesus would say to all of us this morning, there's a very crucial truth that you need never forget, and that is this. You are the only authentic salt this world will ever taste. And you are the only authentic light this world will ever see. 
Now, taking those two images, it's very clear, isn't it, that our Lord would say to us, we live in a decadent world. We live in a decaying world. We live in a dark world. And where there is decay, our Lord says, there is a great need for salt. And of course, where there is darkness, there is a great need for light. And the Lord Jesus has determined in his sovereign plan to reach the nations with the gospel that he will use you and me as salt to put a stop to death, that he will use you and me as light to stamp out darkness. And I cannot help but see a connection, I had not seen it before, with these words of our being salt and light to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where we go into all among all the nations making disciples, and we do so as we are salt and light to a watching, weary, decaying, dying, dark world. Now, this is a text that's very easy to outline because in verse 13, the theme is salt. In verses 14 through 16, the world is, uh, the theme is light. Salt to the earth, light to the world. And I like what the late Keith Green said in terms of challenging you and me to recognize the very strategic moment that God gives each one of us in the life that he gives us. Keith Green said this, this generation is responsible for this generation of souls on the earth. And so what Jesus again would say to you and to me this morning is, we're to be salt and light right now. We're to be salt and light today. We're to be salt and light during the very all too brief life that God gives us. So let's look at this text quickly this morning, noting two aspects to it. Number one, we are to be salt to a world in decay. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now this phrase should be read in the context of verses 11 and 12, because there as he brings the Beatitudes to a conclusion, he tells us, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, as citizens of God's kingdom bearing salt and light, we need to recognize that our witness is going to give rise to persecution. Uh, it is not going to be well received. Taking a stand for Jesus will not always be applauded. We know very well it will not always be popular. The fact of the matter is we should anticipate that we're going to be reviled, made fun of. Uh, we should accept and uh, expect that we're going to be persecuted on varying levels depending upon our particular location and context in the world. Well, Jesus says, be glad and rejoice. Uh, this is what they did to the prophets. When people revile you and when people persecute you, rejoice because you're standing in very good company. You stand there with the prophets. Furthermore, there is a great reward awaiting you in heaven. Is it really worth it taking a stand for Jesus? Is it really worth it putting up with persecution? Is it really worth it having people mock you and make fun of you because of your commitment to Christ and your stand for Jesus? The Lord says, absolutely. I see what's going on 
and I will honor you for what you do in taking a stand for me in this life. In other words, we are to stand in radical contrast to those in verses 11 and 12 who are opposing the work of God in this world because as kingdoms of his citizen, we are fundamentally different. We bear salt that purifies and preserves. And we are to be a light that shines and vanquishes the darkness. Robert Mounts has noted that some people read the Beatitudes and if they're not careful, they can almost draw the conclusion that the Christian life is somewhat passive. But I like how he puts it together with the text that we're looking at here. He says this, if the Beatitudes leave the impression that life in the kingdom is somewhat passive, the metaphors of salt and light correct such a misunderstanding. Salt permeates and performs its vital function in society. And light illumines the darkness and points people to the one who is the source of all light and life. Now, Jesus says two things about this salt that he places in a world in decay. First of all, he says to us, don't lose your purity. He declares you are the salt of the earth. The the you, by the way, there is emphatic. You and no one else is the salt of the earth. That's the idea that he has in mind there. Furthermore, he does not say, you will be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you can become the salt of the earth. He says you are today, right now, the salt of the earth. Now, I did a little research here and discovered that salt in the ancient world had a number of different functions. At least five were noted uh, by various students of Scripture. Some noted that uh, salt uh, served the, uh, the, the, the function of purity It served the function of preservation. Uh, It served the function, as we use today, of flavoring food. It it was used for the function of even healing wounds. And, of course, it was also used to create thirst. And it was well pointed out by these different students of the Bible that uh, followers of Jesus can and should be all of these things. But I agree with uh, our colleague here, Chuck Quarles, whose book on the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most stellar things I've ever read. I, I can't compare it to anything else on the Sermon on the Mount. It says, well, that well done. He says, most likely, there are two ideas that permeate what Jesus is getting at here. And that is the idea of purifying and that of the idea of preserving. In fact, he says in that work, the use of salt as a purifying agent overlaps somewhat with the use of salt as a preservative. Salt preserved because it first purified. Nevertheless, the use of salt as a purifying agent is primary in chapter five and verse 13. In other words, scattered out among the nations of the earth, we are to bear faithful witness to the transforming power of the gospel, both by the lives that we live and by the things that we say. You've heard it said many times, but it is true. Our walk and our talk need to match up. And brothers and sisters, a pure life will bring power to our proclamation. But a pure life is the result of chapter 5, verse 8, and that is the pure heart that has been placed in us at conversion by the Lord Jesus Christ. I doubt anyone uh, in my studies uh, over the years exemplified this any better than the Olympic star, gold medalist, and missionary to China, Eric Little. 
Uh, Eric Little in his last years was confined to a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Weissen, China. Uh, he would die shortly before the end of World War II as a result of an incurable brain tumor. But fellow missionary David Mitchell said of Eric Little during their time together in that internment camp in that POW, faithful and cheerful to the end. Eric Little made the difference for so many in the camp. Otherwise, many of them would not have survived. And then he raises the question, what was the secret to Eric Little's life that allowed him to have that kind of impact in that horrible situation? And here's what he said, and I quote, he unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to Eric. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp early each morning, he and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for an hour. As a Christian, Eric Little's desire was to know God more deeply and as a missionary, to make him known more fully. And this he did, both in his life and also in his death. Jesus says to us, don't lose your purity. But Jesus also says to us, don't lose your usefulness either. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except number one, to be thrown out, and number two, trampled under your people's feet. Jesus says salt is good as long as it maintains its integrity. However, in the ancient world, salt was susceptible to becoming contaminated and therefore impure. It could, as the text says, lose its taste and its saltiness could not then be restored. Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book, The, the Message, his paraphrase, The Message, says it like this of this verse, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? And of course, the answer is they won't, at least not from the one who has lost his saltiness because he no longer lives a godly and a pure life. And as a result of losing your purity, as a result of no longer living a life of holiness and godliness, Jesus says you become useless to the kingdom. You're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He said something, by the way, very similar in Luke chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. There our Lord says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or even for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Brothers and sisters, compromise is a deadly cancer to our witness in the world. There is so much I could say about that this morning, and I have asked the Lord to be very close to me to guide exactly what I say because I want to be careful as well as prophetic in what I say. But the fact of the matter is too many who profess to, to call Christ Lord, who do call Christ Lord, have been seduced by all sorts of sirens of modernity. 
So many today have compromised their witness because of their love for stuff and things. We call it materialism. And I'm watching today many people compromise their witness because of political expediency. I'm watching many people today compromise their witness because of irresponsible rhetoric. And that includes what you may post at Facebook or you may put out on Twitter. And I'm watching so many today compromise again their integrity and their witness by their compromise with moral laxity and just downright foolish activity. And when that happens, the attractiveness and the beauty of the Christian gospel is lost. And listen to me, you can absolutely maintain your commitments and your convictions on one hand, and at the same time, exhibit those commitments and convictions with grace and humility on the other. And when you put grace and humility and conviction and commitment together, people will take notice and they will be drawn to you. Now, they may be drawn to you with the purpose then of repelling you, but they can't ignore you. They can't just kick you to the curb and pretend that you're not there and to pretend that there's not something fundamentally different about your life and your witness. I've watched this happen so many times on the mission field. I had two of my sons that for a time served overseas and in both cases, their wives share with me how the way they were treated by their husbands had a gospel impact in their culture because they lived in a culture where women were not valued, where women were demeaned, where women were viewed by men as something that they could use. Let me tell you something. I'm not surprised when lost people speak in ugly, godless, demeaning terms about women. That does not surprise me. But it embarrasses me to no end when they're defended by Christians. And we compromise our witness, not only here in America, but when the world, let me just be clear here. You get on the mission field and you understand immediately the world thinks all Americans are Christians. They think Hillary Clinton's a Christian. They think Donald Trump's a Christian. So they see on the one hand, someone that does not value innocent life in the womb of its mother, nor does she honor the sanctity of biblical marriage. And then on the other hand, they see a man who talks about women as if they were less than human. And then evangelicals come along and try to defend or make excuses or cover over some way the activity of this one as opposed to the other. And it brings shame to the name of Jesus all around the world. Now, I'm not surprised again when lost people act like lost people. That is to be expected. But when Christians try to justify that, shame on us. Shame on us for not being the salt that God saved us to be in a dark, decaying world. And I'm telling you again, you can hold your convictions and your commitments at the same time, exhibiting grace and kindness and love and mercy all wrapped up together. That's what Jesus did. And those of us who follow him should walk very carefully in his footsteps. No, God has called us to be salt in a world that is decaying. He tells us, don't lose your purity. And he tells us, don't 
lose your usefulness either. David Dockery is right. Salt is only good when it is giving of itself to others. Number two, we're to be light to a world in darkness. Look at what he says in verse 14. You are the light of the world. Amy Carmichael, one of my favorite missionaries who served for many years faithfully in China, wrote in her journal after hearing Hudson Taylor describe the massive lostness of the world, and I quote, does it not stir our hearts to go forth and help them? Does it not make us long to leave our luxury, our exceeding light, and go to them that sit in darkness? The image and the metaphor of light is a rich one in the Bible. You go back into the Old Testament and you discover that the image of light is used for a number of things, such as God's revelation, the revealing of his truth. It is used for instruction. It is used for hope. It is used for joy. It is used for righteousness. It is used for salvation. It is used for life. And it is used also to communicate the divine, uh, the radiance of the divine presence. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, and Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, it describes the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, as a, quote, light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And Jesus brings all of those beautiful images together and then embodies them in himself when he stands up and can declare in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am and no one else is the light of the world. But then he does an incredible thing here. That light which is associated with God in the Old Testament, that light which our Lord says is exhibited preeminently in his life in the New Testament, he now takes that same image and can you believe it? He throws it out there on us. And the one who is the light of the world now says that we're to go forth and shine for him as light in the world as well. Again, Chuck Quarles says it so beautifully, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people doing what? Fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God among the nations. Chuck, uh, uh, Charles Swindoll, I mean, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said of the gospel, quote, preaching of the gospel, this is the great battering ram that shall dash down the bulwarks of iniquity. This is the great light that shall shatter the darkness. Now that we not miss exactly what Jesus wants us to understand. He uses two examples to tell us and to help us understand the nature of this light that we are to be. He says, first of all, learn from the example of light on a hill. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. First of all, he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Of course, in the ancient world, they didn't have electricity. And at night as one traveled, there was a darkness that you and I have seldom, if ever, experienced in our lives. And yet as they would move about, there upon a hill would be a city. And of course, that city would be lit. And it would provide guidance and it would provide direction and it would give them a path to travel safely by the light that they were able to see. 
Again, Spurgeon says it this way, Christ has lighted us that we might enlighten the world. God intends his grace to be as conspicuous as a city built on a mountain's brow. In other words, God did not redeem us and call us into his kingdom to hide us, did he? And he did not save us for us to be silent saints. No, the pronoun is again emphatic. We are and no one else is to be the light of the world. This light, as he says, is to be a light to the world. It's to have a global impact among the nations. We are the light of the world. We are the light to the world. We are a light put on display by our Savior among the nations. And again, people sometimes ask me, are you discouraged about what is going on today in the Western world and in particular in America? And I said, not really. Light always shines brightest against the darkness. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say it another way, the true authentic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has never shone brighter in America in my lifetime. Why? Because there's so much darkness. There's so much evil. There's so much wickedness. There's so much decay. And so instead of whining like a mule about it, might it be that God is working Might it be that God is orchestrating? You know, God is, by the way, not up in heaven right now, wringing his hands saying, can you believe how America has screwed up this recent election process? My soul, I never saw this coming. No, he's not up there worried and he's not up there wringing his hands. He is sovereignly sitting upon his throne guiding and directing and orchestrating all things according to his plan. Now, that doesn't mean that we sit back and we do nothing. It doesn't mean that we become irresponsible. It doesn't mean we become passive, but it does mean that when everything is said and done, we do not walk under the banner of an American flag, but we walk under the banner of a cross. And that is where our hope is. And when we lose sight of that, we lose our saltiness and we don't become the bright light that he saved us and then commissioned us to be among the nations. Learn from the example of light on a hill. And then he says, learn from the example of light in a house. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor, verse 15, do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it then gives light to all in the house. The word light occurs four times in verses 14 through 16. It's put on a hill for the whole world to see. And now it's put on a stand in the house to illumine the entire home. No one would ever think of lighting an oil lamp and then hiding it under a basket or as the NIV translates, it's a bowl or more precise, a clay container. No, that's nonsense. In fact, I could imagine that when Jesus told this particular, made this particular statement, his disciples probably chuckled and laughed a bit at such a silly idea. Why? Because the purpose of a lamp is to give light and the purpose of a disciple is to provide light. And we provide that light both by a holy life and by a bold witness. And again, we will shine bright and we will shine far and we will impact far more people than most of us could ever, ever imagine. 
He points out at the end of verse 16 that all of this is not that people would praise you and me, but all of this is that people would praise our Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, especially, I would say, as exhibited in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as what follows. And when they see your good works, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They don't glorify you, they glorify Him. They attribute what they see to God working in you. Note the followers of Jesus, they're not the source or origin of their good works, only the conduit, only the channel. God gets the glory, how? Through my transformed life and through my faithful witness of grace in my life. The spotlight is never on us, but it reflects through us to him and the spotlight is always where it should be, right there on King Jesus. John Falconer was a missionary for only a few years. He died at the age of 31. Again, it's amazing how often God takes some of his choicest servants so quickly. Uh, He was from Scotland. He was an Arabic scholar. He was a world cycling champion, winning the world cycling championship in 1878 at the tender age of 22. But very much like another Scotsman, Eric Little, he walked away from all of that, took his, uh, his, his wife with him to Egypt and then later to Yemen as a missionary for Jesus. Tragically, he would contract malaria and he would die at the age of 31, having been married to his wife, Gwendolyn, for only three years. In the biography written about his life, Robert Sinker said this about uh, John Falconer, a career of exceptional promise was early closed in the death of John Keith Falconer. The beauty of his character, his ardent missionary zeal, his great learning, formed a combination rarely equaled how noble a life his was. I read that and I cannot help but ask the question, what was the difference? What was it that would cause John Falconer to walk away from the personal glory of being a world champion to pursue with a reckless abandonment the glory of King Jesus and the lost among the nations? I suspect It was a conviction buried deep within his heart that was expressed well in his biography. And I close with this. I have but one candle of life to burn. And I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. That was true of John Falconer. It is my prayer that it will be true of you and of me as well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for words that uh, cut and also heal. I thank you for words that convict me, but as well uh, comfort me. And I thank you that uh, in your kindness, And in your grace, you have called us to be your witnesses on the earth and around the world. And I thank you, Lord, that you've made it very clear the kind of witnesses that we're to be. We're to be salt, uh, exhibiting the transformed power of the gospel 
by the holy and pure lives that we live. And Lord, you've called us to be light, bearing witness in a dark world that needs to know that there is hope and there is salvation and there is life in he who is, in him who is the light of the world. And Lord, forgive us when we don't shine very brightly. Forgive us, Lord, when we allow ourselves to become contaminated. And Lord, I want to be honest, it's not always easy to navigate uh, the terrain of a fallen, broken world. But you've given us your word to guide us. You've given us the Holy Spirit to convict us. And so, Lord, it is my prayer for me as well as my precious brothers and sisters here in this place that we will be salt to a decaying world and we will be light to a world shrouded in darkness. All for your glory, none for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.